Now, there is one thing that we see consistently from Genesis to Revelation. This is a fact, and that is that God is all glorious. Amen? God is all glorious. In the Old Testament, the Hebrew word kabod is used for glory. And that word, it means weight. It means heaviness. And so what we see is that God's glory speaks of the weightiness of his worth. The Bible's clear on this point. There is nothing light about his character. There is nothing light about his attributes. Instead, we see that God is heavy in holiness and righteousness and love. God is heavy in honor and majesty. God is heavy in power and wealth, in truth and in justice, in mercy and grace. And so when the Bible speaks about the appearance of God's glory, it is the outshining of who he is. And so that means because God is all glorious, he must be glorified, right? God must be glorified. This means that God is deserving of all praise, all honor. He deserves to be magnified and exalted above all things. Now listen, only the uncreated, all-glorious God is worthy of all glory. It would be theft for any created something or someone to claim this kind of glory for himself. In fact, listen to what God said to his people. In Isaiah chapter 42, verse 8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another, nor my praise to carved images. Wow. Listen to what God said to his people in Leviticus 10.3. He said, by those who come near me, I must be regarded as holy, and before all the people, I must be glorified. God is all glorious, and he must be glorified. And this is especially true among his creation. You know that God created all creation by his will and for his glory. And this includes you and me. The famous Westminster Shorter Catechism asks the question, what is the chief end of man? The response is this, quote, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. And so the message of the Bible is clear. We exist for God's glory. Listen, we were made for this. In Isaiah 43, verse 7 we see that God formed us and made us and created us for his glory. But not only were we made for God's glory, listen, we were saved for God's glory. When you open up to Ephesians chapter one, for example, and you read verses three through 14, there we see that we were chosen by the Father and redeemed by the Son and sealed with the Holy Spirit, all to the praise of the glory of God. And so this means that our passion in life should be to glorify God. Your passion, my passion, it should be to glorify God. And, and passion for God's glory it is the strong, fervent desire to praise and honor and magnify and exalt God in all things. To have a passion for God's glory is to make much of God in who we are and what we do. In fact, the New Testament makes this point clear in 1 Corinthians 10.31. You guys know 1 Corinthians 10.31, right? It says, whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. God is all glorious. And he must be glorified. And we were made and we were saved to glorify him. But 
There are lots of Christians in lots of different churches today who are, instead of passionate about God's glory, they are passionless for God's glory. And instead of seeing strong, fervent desire for God's glory, we see spiritual apathy. Now, spiritual apathy, it's impassive. That means that there is a lack of feeling or emotion for God's glory. And spiritual apathy is indifferent. That means there's a lack of interest or concern for God's glory. And listen, this was the condition of the Jews here in Haggai chapter 1. Their attitude towards God's glory was impassive and indifferent. But God wanted to change all that. And God wanted to bring his people to where they belong. He wanted them to be and to be in the being and in the living with passion for his glory. And so as we come to the first chapter of the book of Haggai, I see in this um, chapter the message of a renewed passion for God's glory. In verses 1 through 11, we see the need for it. We see that God's people were in need for a renewed passion for God's glory. And then in verses 12 through 15, we see that the people received it. There was a renewed passion for God's glory that came to them. And so this is what I'd like us to spend time this afternoon looking at and thinking about. And hopefully we can walk out of this place with application. We begin with the need for a renewed passion for God's glory. Look at verses 1 and 2. We read, in the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month. Now, this translates to September 1st, 520 B.C. on our calendars. At that time, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, now listen, thus speaks the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says... The time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Now, here's the backstory that leads to Haggai chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Now, we remember that the kingdom of Judah fell to the Babylonians, and Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 586 B.C., and you remember that the Jews were deported from their homeland and they lived as exiles in Babylonian captivity for 70 years. Now fast forward to 539 BC. In 539 BC, Babylon fell to Cyrus the Great, the king of the Medes and the Persians. Then in 538 BC, Cyrus allowed the Jews to return back to their homeland and rebuild the temple. And the Bible tells us that 50,000 Jews returned under the leadership of two men, Zerubbabel and Joshua. Now, Zerubbabel was the governor of the Jewish people. He was their political leader. And Joshua was the Jewish high priest. He was their religious leader. And having returned back to Jerusalem, the Jews started the work of rebuilding God's house. They built an altar. They reinstated the sacrifices. They kept the Feast of Tabernacles and laid the foundation. But not too long after the work started, Gentiles who settled in Israel while the Jews were in captivity, they started to oppose this work. And they came against them with taunts and threats and political tactics. And how did the Jews respond? Well, the Jews responded to their enemies with fear and surrender. And they abandoned the work of rebuilding God's house, and it remained this way for 16 years. And over time, the mission of rebuilding God's house became a matter of inconvenience for God's people. 
In fact, J. Sidlow Baxter, he made this comment, quote, the people were getting used to being without a temple and this would have proved fatal. Wow. Then in 520 BC, God sent his prophet Haggai to his people to call them back to rebuilding his house. And this is where we pick up the story here in Haggai, chapter one, verses one and two. But I want you to listen to God's opening words to his people, and we see it in verse two. He says, this people says, the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Listen, having left the work of rebuilding God's house, God's people directed their focus and attention to building their own homes. We see that doing God's work was no longer a priority to them. In fact, it became a matter of inconvenience. It was something that would be attended to only if it fit into their personal agendas and schedule. And we see that these people esteemed God's house as being less and less and less in worth than their own homes. You see, for them, their personal well-being superseded God's honor and God's will in value and importance. And what we see here is that these people were in a very bad place in their spiritual lives. They were impassive and indifferent towards the things that matter to God. Self became the center of their existence. They were orbiting around me, myself, and I, the ultimate trinity of stupidity. And self-interest became the chief end of their lives. And so we see what God says to them in verses three through five. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple lie in ruins? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Those three words, consider your ways, are worth underlining, highlighting, circling. We need to take note of those words. Now, these words appear two times in Haggai 1, once here and then again in verse 7. Now, these words are a call to action. When God tells his people to consider their ways, what he's saying is take a good, hard look at yourselves and see where you are and see what you're doing. God told them to do this so that they could see the truth about themselves as God saw them. Listen, they were not where God wanted them to be spiritually. And they were not doing what God wanted them to be doing as priority. These people may have never considered their ways if God didn't tell them to do it. They had grown so comfortable that the thought of asking the question, am I where I should be? Am I doing what I should be doing? It didn't even cross their mind. And so God commands them to consider their ways. And this had to happen. This had to happen for God's people to repent of sin and to return to God and to God's mission. Now, back in verse two, we see that the emphasis was on the people placing importance on their homes over God's house. But I want you to see here in verses three and four that God places the importance of his house over their homes. And the reason for the preeminence of God's house over ours is wrapped up in the words, God's glory. We need to understand that the reason why God's house is such a big deal to God is because of glory. God is passionate about his house because he is passionate 
compassionate about his glory. He is glorified in his house. He is glorified by his house. And in the Bible, we see the connection between God's glory and God's house. In fact, we see this in the example of 2 Chronicles 7, verses 1 and 2. Remember there at the dedication service? As they were dedicating God's temple built by King Solomon, we read, when Solomon had finished praying, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offerings and the sacrifices. Listen, and the glory of the Lord filled the temple and the priest could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord had filled the Lord's house. The glory of God was connected with the house of God. And so this helps us to understand that the real reason for God's command to rebuild his house was never about the building. It wasn't about the brick and mortar. It wasn't about the scaffolding. It wasn't about the new carpet or the paint color. The real reason for God's command to rebuild his house was all about God and it was all about his glory. And this point will be reinstated in Haggai chapter one, verses seven and eight. It was glory. And the people lost sight of this. And so, since the mission was no longer about God, God's work became small and meaningless to them. And by neglecting God's house, these people demonstrated a carelessness for God's glory. And on the other hand, by diligently attending to their own houses, they displayed a passion for self-glory. The people were not being, and they were not doing what God made and saved them to be and do. And I want you to see what the result of this was in the following verses. In verse six we read, you have sown much and bring in little. You eat but do not have enough. You drink but you are not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Now go down to verses nine through 11. You looked for much but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts? Because of my house that is in ruins. While every one of you runs to his own house, therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil on whatever the ground brings forth on men and livestock and on all the labor of your hands. God sent a severe drought and famine to their land. Number one, to discipline them, and number two, to get their attention. You see, the physical condition of the land illustrated the spiritual condition of the people. They were dry and they were barren. The people made the pursuit of satisfying their own needs and wants the master passion of their hearts. And in the end, the result was dissatisfaction and discontentment. They were spending their time and energy. We, we just read it. They were spending their time and energy at sowing, at eating, at at clothing, at earning wages, but what did they end up with? They ended up with little harvest and more hunger and more thirst and no warmth and lost income. We saw that in verse six. Because here's the spiritual principle. People who make it their aim in life to prioritize self-interest above God's honor, God's will, God's work, will always end up with dissatisfaction and discontentment. Let's remember, God made us. 
And he saved us for his glory. This is why we exist. And whenever we are not being, and whenever we are not doing what he made and saved us for, we end up with a dissatisfied and discontented existence. And that was the case with these people here. Now look at verses seven and eight. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. There's a couple of things I'd like you to see in these two verses. First, God's command. He tells his people to go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple. This is a command to return to the mission. Return to the mission of gathering the building materials and rebuild God's house in Jerusalem. But then secondly, I want you to see God's reason for this command. He says that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. Again, we're reminded it was just never about the building. It was all about his glory. God wanted his house rebuilt so he can be glorified by it. Glory happens as God's people would assemble there in his house and with one voice they would lift up their praises to God as God is enthroned in the praises of his people. He was glorified as Gentiles would come into into his house and they would learn about the one true God of Israel and they would be converted to God. God said, my house shall be called a house of prayer for many nations. This is where people were to gather and God's glory would shine forth before his people. It was always about glory. It's all about glory. This is the aim and the goal of the mission to rebuild God's house, God's glory. This was a call to a renewed passion for God's glory. Now, up until this point, this message has been heavy. And it's only gonna get heavier as we now get into the application. As I came here to Haggai chapter one, I was confronted again by those three words, consider your ways. Hopefully we all showed up today because we believe that God still speaks and he wants to speak to all of us through his word, right? It would be pointless for us to show up today just to play church. We should all come expecting to hear God speak. And I believe that God is speaking to us from Haggai chapter one today, corporately and personally. And so as we've been listening to God's message to his people centuries ago in 520 BC, we need to also ask, Lord, what are you saying to me right now? So for the past 48 hours, I was on a journey. As I was preparing for this sermon, and as I was confronted with those words, consider my ways, I had to stop and spend time to consider my ways. I need to humble myself. And I need to allow God's spirit to show me the truth about me by the mirror of his word. And so I wrote down a series of questions that I could answer. So in considering my ways, here's what I came up with. Am I being what what God wants me to be today? Am I doing what God wants me to be doing today? 
Do I esteem myself interests above God's? Has doing what God wants me to do become a matter of convenience instead of priority? Do I care more about what people think about me than making much of God before others? Has my love for God become cold, my worship passionless, and my obedience fickle? In the Old Testament, God's temple was a building. In the New Testament, God's temple is his people. Understanding this, do I care about God's people or have I become okay with being disconnected and disengaged from them? Does God's mission of reaching lost people with the gospel for the glory of his name still matter to me? Or have I become content to let non-Christians pass me by without hearing God's saving message? Am I faithful to be and do what I believe is God's call upon my life, or have I derailed from it and over time drifted farther and farther away from God's purpose for my life? Do my material possessions matter more to me than God's eternal kingdom? Do I tolerate and make allowances for sin or do I daily fight against it by the Holy Spirit for the glory of God's name? Do I have a passion for God's glory? Or am I in need of a renewed passion for God's glory? Those are the questions I asked myself in response to God's command, consider your ways. Listen, let's be humble and receptive to all that God is showing us, you and me, right now about our spiritual condition. And let's be quick to repent of sin and let's return to God by faith as our active response to his grace toward us. Because I'll tell you what, that comes with promise. Listen to what God promised us in 2 Chronicles 7.14. In 2 Chronicles 7.14, God said, if my people, who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sins and restore their land. Amen? That is what the Lord wants to do for us. That is what the Lord wants to do for his church. This is what he wants to do in our nation. And this is what we see in verses 1 through 11, that these people had a real need for a renewed passion for God's glory. How about you? How about me? But here's what I love. I'm so glad Haggai 1 doesn't end this way. I'm so glad Haggai 1 has verses 12 through 15. Because what we see in verses 12 through 15 is that a renewed passion for God's glory, it came to God's people. Revival happened among God's people. God's people heard Haggai's message and they returned to God and they returned to God's mission. And God renewed a passion for his glory within them and among them by sending them real spiritual revival. Now, we all know what revival is, right? The dictionary definition for revival is to bring back to life. And spiritual revival is a visitation from God, resulting in a fresh sense of his presence and power and love. And spiritual revival happens among God's people, and when it happens, it impacts non-believers. This is what the people needed, and this is what God sent them. And what God did within them became evident 
through them. And this is what we see in verses 12 through 15. We see the characteristics of revival. How different did their life look when God revived his people? It looked totally different. I want you to see the characteristics of this revival. First, there was a renewed obedience to the word of God. There was a renewed obedience to the word of God. Look at verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent them. In Psalm 19, verse 7, the Bible says, the law of the Lord is perfect reviving the soul. I love that. And we see that happening as Haggai opens his mouth and proclaims God's word. The people heard it and they responded to it with obedience. God's spirit revived God's people through the preaching of God's word. And I want you to see something about what happens in times of revival. We see here in verse 12 that God sent his prophet Haggai to declare his word, and God's people listened and they responded. Guys, application in times of revival, God sends his messengers, and a clear prophetic voice is heard in the church again. A voice proclaiming God's word by God's spirit God, and God's power getting the attention of God's people. Maybe for someone here or someone watching online or someone listening to this message on the radio, maybe God could use my voice today to be a voice. As you've been listening to this message, God is going deep into your hearts and he's showing you stuff that's making you uncomfortable about the true condition, your spiritual condition, and you see apathy. You see lethargy. There's no passion. It's passionless. And God might use this voice right now in this place to get your attention, saying it's time to come back to the Lord and to start being what you were created to be, to start being what you were saved to be. That voice that resonates with your heart and it wakes us up. That was the voice of Haggai the prophet for these people. But also we see that when the people heard Haggai preach, they received God's word and they responded to God's word with renewed faith and obedience. And this is what it always looks like in times of real spiritual revival. We all heard those words God said it, I believe it, that settles it. I remember years ago when I was on staff here in the early 90s, Pastor Romaine was still around. And every time I would say that, Romaine would remind me, really, it's God said it and that settles it. It really doesn't matter if you and I believe it. God's word is God's word. Now, I want you to think back, do you remember do you remember back when, when Christianity was a lot simpler than it is today? We would just open up the Bible and just see what God says in his word, and we would respond with obedience. There was no arguing with God's word. We were ready to obey. We wanted to obey. In times of revival, people go back to that. Secondly, 
there was a renewed awe and reverence for God. In verse 12, we read, and the people feared the presence of the Lord. This always happens in revivals. There is a renewed awe and reverence for God. God's people no longer settle for small views of God, but instead they start esteeming God as big and great, and they start making much of him again. It's interesting that when you look at the history of revivals, it's during these times that many of the hymns of praise and the songs of worship were written and sung. In times of revival, God gave the church a voice again. Worship could be heard again. People were lifting up their voices and magnifying God again. People were exalting his name again. The church was not silent. The church had a voice in the world. And God was being made much of in the world. Because in times of revival, the church cannot and does not remain silent. In fact, she reflects the words of Psalm 45, verse 1. When the psalmist said, my heart overflows with a good theme, I recite my composition concerning the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. It was during the times of revival that I think of the hymns written by Charles Wesley that this was the anthem of the church. I want you to listen to an example of one of those hymns. Charles Wesley wrote a hymn called Jesus the Name High Over All. Jesus the Name High Over All in hell or earth or sky. Angels and mortals prostrate fall and devils fear and fly. Jesus, the name to sinners dear, the name to sinners given, it scatters all their guilty fears. It turns their hell to heaven. Oh, that the world might taste and see the riches of his grace, the arms of love that compass me would all the world embrace. Thee I shall constantly proclaim, though earth and hell oppose, bold to confess thy glorious name before a world of foes. His only righteousness I show, his saving truth proclaim. Tis all my business here below to cry, behold the Lamb, happy if with my latest breath I may but gasp his name, preach him to all, and cry in death, behold, behold, the lamb. Who talks like that anymore? Where are these songs? This is the language of the church in times of revival when the church is being what she should be, when the church is doing what she should do. And you know what happens? When awe and reverence for God is renewed among God's people, it impacts non-believers around them. Because revivals are times when the church glorifies and magnifies Christ and the gospel again, and large numbers of non-believers hear and see this and they turn to Christ by faith as Savior and King. In Acts 9, verse 31, it tells us that as the church was walking in the fear, that's the awe and reverence of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they were multiplied. Guys, there is something wrong about a church where the gospel is not being proclaimed 
and people are not converting to Christ. There's something wrong when people have grown content with the size that it is and we're okay with the seats that remain vacant. Because God's not okay with it. Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. And for this reason, I am so thankful that this church has Beachside Summerfest. We are going to proclaim the good news of Jesus to Orange County. How awesome is that? For this reason, I am so glad we have Creation Fest. We are going to proclaim the gospel of Jesus to the UK. For this reason, I'm so thankful for the people that go out to share the gospel on a regular basis. Because in times of revival, God puts his heart inside of us. And you know what? God's heart is longing for people to be saved. Number three, in times of revival, there's a renewed sense of the nearness of God. In verse 13, we read, then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke, to the, or spoke the Lord's message to the people saying, I am with you, says the Lord. I love these verses so much. The spiritual drought is over. God's presence is known and felt once again. And, and maybe this is a word for someone here today. You feel like God is far from you. And it could be because you're far from God. But God said, if you draw near to me, then I'll draw near to you. And when spiritual revival happens, God's people experience a visitation from God resulting in a fresh sense of his presence and power and love. And then finally, number four, there was a renewed zeal for the work of God. There was a renewed zeal for the work of God. Look at verses 14 and 15. So the Lord stirred up. The, the New Living Translation has it as sparked enthusiasm. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. How did they respond to the word of the Lord? they got back to doing the mission. God's people demonstrated a renewed passion for God's glory by finishing God's house in the power of God's spirit. Just as the contemporary of Haggai, at the same time that Haggai was preaching, there was another prophet named Zechariah that was preaching, and he delivered this message to the Jews there in Zechariah 4, 6, it's not by might, it's not by power, it's by my spirit, says the Lord. That is how God's work gets done. And so revivals are times when self-interest is replaced by a passion for doing God's will. And real revivals are marked by passionate devotion and service toward God and his work among God's people. Do you remember those days when the thought of serving King Jesus was super exciting? Right, do you remember those days like we were just waiting for any opportunity to show up where we could just drop everything and serve the Lord because that was priority. Everything else didn't really matter compared to that. Do you remember that? 
you know, Chuck would talk about, Pastor Chuck would talk about needing volunteers to go up to the mountain to work on the youth camp. And, and all these men, they just dropped everything. Hey, I want to go serve. Or if there were need for volunteers for youth camps, hey, we dropped everything. Hey, I want to go serve. Well, let's fast forward to today. Where are you now? I hope you're still there. I hope you're still excited about wanting to serve the Lord. Or has all of that stuff become secondary? I'll get to it if it fits into my schedule. I'll get to it if it fits into my agenda. But when real revival happens, God stirs up our spirits once again and he rekindles the excitement, the joy of serving him and being on mission for King Jesus. So let me end with this closing word of application. Just like the audience in 520 BC, we need to hear and respond to this message today. God is speaking to us. Yes, he spoke this to those people centuries ago, but listen, God is speaking to you and me right now. God is here among us. He's here right now, and he is speaking to us corporately and is speaking to each one of us personally. Now, I believe... I believe that God wants to revive his church. I believe that God wants to renew a passion for his glory in us. I believe that God's spirit wants to move in our nation again with saving power. I believe that God wants to bring spiritual awakening to the people of this land. How many of you believe with me that that is what God wants to do again? I mean, do we believe that? I believe this, but here's the deal. All that has to start here among us. It has to start here with us. Someone once asked the revivalist Gypsy Smith, how do revivals start? He said, go to your room draw a circle around yourself and pray that God would send revival inside that circle. And when that happens, revival will be on. Now, what would it look like, church, if everybody in first service, second service, and third service said, you know what, I'm going to go do that. I'm going to go, and I am metaphorically going to draw a circle around me and pray that revival comes inside that circle. And as people are experiencing that, re that just revival life, then you get all those individuals and you stick them together in one place, man, that would be amazing. But for us as a church, we can never allow ourselves to grow discontent and dissatisfied with Christ and his mission. We can never afford to allow ourselves to be okay, comfortable with the empty seats around us. We can never afford to allow ourselves to grow to a place of being comfortable saying, yeah, they need volunteers, but I'm just gonna let someone else do it. We cannot afford to become people who do not exercise our spiritual gifts in this church body because Paul says it's in the exercising of our spiritual gifts that the church grows into maturity, into the likeness of the head, Christ Jesus. We cannot afford to be mere spectators. But as you and I 
become the recipients of God's reviving life. Let's believe and pray again that God would send revival to this church, to all the churches, and then the impact would affect the nation. Because I'll tell you what, this is the only hope for our nation. Don't look to politics, don't look to government. What our nation is in desperate need for is the church to be revived and the church to have a voice again and the church to make much of Christ again so that Christ would draw men and women to himself. Amen? Let's all stand together. Now, I know that normally at this time we would either have private prayer or we'd break up into groups in prayer, but I want to do something a little different. I would like to pray for all of us corporately. As God has spoken today, as God has gone deep into the matters of your heart, let's pray that God would now pour out His Spirit of grace and supplication upon us. Man, just think about what this church, I mean, just, I believe, man, just this church is overflowing with people coming to hear the gospel. Our Sunday night prayer meeting is just overflowing with people to cry out to God. Worship being loud and vibrant because we're making much of God. That is God's heart for his people. That is God's heart for us. So let's pray for God's grace to be upon us. Father, this afternoon we thank you for your word. And we want to humble ourselves right now and ask for your forgiveness. Lord, we just want to say we are so sorry for grieving and quenching your spirit and allowing sin to have such a predominant place in our lives. And we pray that as you wash us and cleanse us with that cleansing water of the word and knowing we believe by faith that the blood of Jesus is continually cleansing us from all sin, we also pray that you will pour out your spirit upon every person that is at earshot of this message, people that are here on campus or listening to this on the radio or on the internet. And Lord, awaken us and help us to respond to your word with humble hearts and revive your people again. Revive your church again. And in the reviving of your people, Lord, may there be a mass movement of salvation in our state and nation again. In fact, the whole world, Lord. And Lord, we pray all these things for your glory and your glory alone. In Jesus' name, and all God's people says, amen. God bless you.